Wow, thank you guys. As it is, you know, we celebrate Thanksgiving. There are many things to be thankful for. I want to let every one of you know that the pastors are very thankful for all of you guys. You know, we know that you're praying for us. You know, our fellowship time with you is awesome. Uh, you guys are a true blessing. You know, when we're preaching, we get texts saying, you know, hey, I'm praying for you. It seems like it's just at the perfect time that you need that prayer as you're studying. And I got one this week said praying for you. By the way, learning a lot about Nicodemus. <laughs> Put a smiley face on there. Guess what? We're not done. We're learning more about Nicodemus today. Please find John chapter 3. Jesus is teaching the teacher of Israel truth. He's teaching him about spiritual things. And, and Nicodemus is struggling in class. My heart kind of goes out to him. If he was one of those guys, maybe not. But... He knows the facts of Scripture, as we saw, but, but he does not know the truth. And so Jesus is patiently walking Nicodemus through the truth, to the truth about salvation from God. He keeps giving him big chunks of meat to chew on. Jesus began his class with Nicodemus saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of God that was on the mind of Nicodemus. He knows that Jesus is from God and that Jesus is with, that God is with Jesus. And he feels for certain that Jesus is the one that has the knowledge of and the answer to spiritual life. But he's struggling. He is struggling to put it all together. And the reason being is, Nicodemus has been a part of the blind leading the blind school for many years. They have misinterpreted the scriptures they had studied. Their problem was they, they came to the word with a self-serving agenda. And so they made the word about them and not about God. There's a truth for all of us. The only agenda we are to have when it comes to the word of God is how can I learn more about God? How can I grow closer to God? How can I become more and more like my Savior? The word from God is about God. It's not about man. And we may think this is a simple truth. Well, yeah, it's all about God. But look, we, we, we can see throughout history, it's not easy for sinful man to make it about God. Hard lesson for prideful man to learn but we must keep it all about Christ. Now, I want us to understand what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus. We saw at the end of chapter two that Jesus himself knew what was in man. Jesus, God, knows the heart of man, right? And then we go into the uh, beginning of chapter three, and we see that it says immediately that there was a man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The point is, Jesus knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus when he came to him that night. Jesus knew that Nicodemus truly wanted to know the truth. He wasn't just a sign seeker. And at the end of chapter two, Jesus uh, did not reveal himself to the sign seekers. Why? Because he knew their heart. He knew their hearts. But here we see Jesus giving Nicodemus truth after truth. We see Jesus giving Nicodemus a, a big lesson from the Old Testament. And Jesus ends up walking Nicodemus right to the foot of the cross without him even knowing. It. 
Listen to John 19:38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may <laughs> take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. He took Nicodemus right to the foot of the cross without him even knowing it. And note, Nicodemus was a man. He told him 75 pounds of stuff down there. <laughs> I like that. Wow. But Nicodemus literally ended up at the foot of the cross. So, be, so Jesus began class with, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, let's get your mind right. First of all, it is about God. You had nothing to contribute to your physical birth, and you have nothing to contribute to your spiritual birth. No one can be born again unless it is an act of God, and no one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know, that got the synapses firing in Nicodemus's brain, but he didn't understand. So Jesus takes him, takes him in a little deeper. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we have... Seeing the kingdom of God comes from God, and now you must be born of water and spirit. More synapses are firing in Nicodemus's mind. He knew that the word, and that in the word of, of God, water and spirit often referred symbolically to spiritual renewal and cleansing. The word promised of such a time that was coming in Ezekiel 36, we saw that last week. God had promised that a God-given new birth was coming. God had promised that he would give his people a new heart, a new nature, clean lives, and a full measure of the spirit on the last day. But Nicodemus could not make the connections. Did Jesus stop there? No. He knew the heart. He takes him to the spirit. So we have seen the kingdom of God comes from God. You must be born of water and spirit. And now man does not control the life-giving spirit of God. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So the new birth that comes from above is a mystery. Everyone who is born of the spirit is like the wind. They are a mystery in a sense. We cannot fully explain or predict either the wind or who is a child of God. And so the point that Jesus is driving home to Nicodemus is man is not in control. Man controls neither the wind nor the spirit of God. Both are invisible and, mis and mysterious. Again, more synapses are firing in the, brain, in the brain of Nicodemus. He's thinking about Ezekiel. He's thinking about the valley of dead bones when he prophesied about the wind. And the spirit came and gave the bones life. The spirit of God, when he comes, gives life to the dead. And Jesus just keeps building truth upon truth there. Challenging Nicodemus with what he thought he knew. Nicodemus knew that Isaiah said that the spirit would be poured out upon the people from high. He knew that Ezekiel told of a time that would come when we would be cleansed from his, when man would be, un, 
be cleansed from his, clean from his uncleanliness and that the spirit would be put into the heart. He knew that Joel 2 said that God will pour out his spirit in all flesh. The teacher of Israel knew the facts recorded in the scripture, but he could not understand the truth. So that brings us to our text this morning. Matt, if I can get you to read chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may clearly, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thank you, brother. Amen. Amen. Now, in verse 13, Jesus says this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. This statement, as we saw last week, tells us why Jesus was uniquely qualified to speak about heavenly matters. His, his authoritative message about heaven was based on personal experience. Yes, we saw that. But he adds something here at the end of this statement that should have perked the ears of Nicodemus and us. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Who did he say did that? The son of man. He uses that title again in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. What does this term mean? Why is it here? Well, let's find out. The term son of man should be familiar to us. Jesus is referred to as the son of man 88 times in the New Testament. But Nicodemus would have been familiar with this term also because the prophet Ezekiel is called son of man over 90 times. So both Jesus and Ezekiel can rightly be called son of man. But there's something unique about the way this title is applied to Christ. Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. And here he, and here he is leaking himself to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. Write that verse in your margins here. Listen to the prophetic word of God. It says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancients of days and was, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This passage is describing the coming Messiah. It's describing Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus is the one who has given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Jesus is the one that all peoples, nations of every language worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. He is the kingdom of God that will never be destroyed. And God's people said, Amen. Here's a little interesting thing I've, I've found about Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom of is the kingdom of God. The word tells us that. It also tells us that Jesus is the king of kings. Listen to what Isaiah wrote about our king in chapter six when he saw God. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. Legend has it that when a king would take over another territory or would defeat another country, they would take the defeated king's robe, cut off the train and attach it to the reigning king's train. So the more kings that the king has defeated, the longer <laughs> his train would be. Isaiah said the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the train of his robe filled the temple. So what does that mean? What does that mean when we see that vision? It means that God has no rivals. He is subject to no other power and he reigns supreme. See, we have to have, like Nicodemus, we have to have a proper view of who God is. And God's train of his robe filled the temple. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. The vast universe is evidence of the glory of God. He is robed with majesty and his throne is established forever. He is almighty on the throne. All will bow before him whose grandeur no one can surpass. His majesty is displayed with lightning and thunderous voices going out from the throne proclaiming his holiness. He is God almighty. He always has been, is now, and forever will be. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs, belongs to him. No one can fully describe the attributes of God, the manner of his existence or manifestation. His power to create, to produce something out of nothing is beyond human understanding. The foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of his hand. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He owes his existence to no one. God is not subject to, altered, or aged by time. He is eternal in nature. Dominion and glory are his. His dominion is everlasting, a kingdom that will never pass away nor be destroyed. We have to have a proper view of who God is. And a proper view is that his robe, the train of his robe, fills the temple. Sorry, golf track there. That stuff excites me. Now that we got this picture of who God is, back to the Son of Man. When Jesus applied the title, the Son of Man, to himself, Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, understood that Jesus was tying himself to the prophecy in Daniel. Now, you guys heard me say over the last few weeks, as we learned about Nicodemus, that he was the, quote, the teacher. The, the definite article, the, is there. He is the teacher of Israel. Now watch this. Jesus always called himself the son of man, as in the only one there is. 
In using the definite article, Jesus contrasts himself with other personalities in the Bible associated with the same term. Like I said a minute ago, Ezekiel was called son of man, but is never called the son of man. He is always just a son of man, as in one of many. Ezekiel was just a man. There was nothing divine about his nature. So what does the son of man mean? Son of man means humankind or human. When we see Ezekiel referred to as son of man, God was pointing out the contrast between the human condition of Ezekiel and the transcendent majesty of God, you see. Man needs to understand who he is and who God is. If we look at the first chapter of Ezekiel, he had a vision of God's glory. He sees this glory and it's a scene of wheels and eyes and storms and fire and strange angelic creatures. But this was his vision of God's glory. But when we get to the next chapter, the first verse in the next chapter where God addresses Ezekiel as son of man, it was at that point that the prophet could not help but realize his own human frailty and limitations in the face of God's unsurpassable glory. God is God and Ezekiel is but a son of man. Man needs to understand who he is and who God is. So in Jesus' case, the application of the title, the son of man, also highlights the humanity of Christ. The difference is that Jesus is the son of man. That is, Jesus is the epitome of humanity. Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus is humanity perfected. That's how to look at it. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile God and man. Now, when Jesus called himself the son of man, it signified that he was the one who Daniel prophesied about. Yes, but it has a dual meaning. And that dual meaning is Jesus is a human, but also God, as mentioned by Daniel. You get that? Jesus is the son of man that is human, but the son of man mentioned in Daniel is God. Now that you got all that knowledge in your head, let's read verses 14 and 15 here in chapter three. And this will bring some light to this passage. Follows on as I read. So, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that is his unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look at what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, the son of man will be lifted up and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It cannot be just any son of man. It can't be just any human that could provide salvation. It has to be the son of man who is human and also God. The intellect of the teacher of Israel is really being challenged here. And Jesus says, and then Jesus says this, he says that God gave his son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Which one gives eternal life? The son of man or the son of God? Both. Both. The term son of God is used many times in the scripture. Son of God can mean any heavenly beings that God created. 
anyone who has been saved becomes a child of God. We become sons of God ready for our inheritance, if you remember. So as we can see, just as with the son of man, there are many, but there is only one. There are many sons of God, but Jesus is the son of God. We see that God gave his unique son, meaning there is none like him. To be the son of God, God's unique son means that Jesus is fully and completely God. This is an unmistakable assertion of his deity right here. So calling Jesus the son of man and the son of God clearly states that Jesus Christ was both fully man and fully God. Jesus is not a a half breed. He's not sometimes man and then sometimes God. He's both completely at the same time. This is the core principle of who Jesus is. Jesus became a man at a point in time in history. He did so without giving up his oneness with God. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal because this is how he became a human being without a sin nature. God became a man for the sole purpose of offering himself as the sacrifice God required to reconcile mankind to himself through Jesus's death. Mankind is reconciled with God. Jesus reconciled God with humanity. And thus he provides the opportunity for each and every living human being to be reconciled to God. Jesus has provided the opportunity for each and every living human being to be reconciled to God. So that's how whoever believes in the son of man may have eternal life. And it's also how whoever believes in God's only begotten son should not perish, but have eternal life. The son of God became the son of man so that God and man can be reconciled. That's God's plan of salvation. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Write that one down. And that brings us to the acknowledgement of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his unique son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So loved. So, So is a measurement of his love. So Love. He so loved us. He gave his only son. We cannot wrap our minds around this love. Write this verse in your margins. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us. How about that? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by love, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is what makes John 3 
so amazing. Have you ever thought about this? God's motive for giving, for giving his only begotten son was that he loved the evil, sinful world of fallen humanity. Have you thought about that? He, he loved his enemies so much that he gave us an indescribable gift. Do you, are you, do you see what I'm saying here? All of humanity is utterly sinful. Everyone is completely lost. No one is able to save himself, not by any ceremony or any effort. But, but not only is, is mankind lost, but there is nothing in man that would attract God's love. Humanity is actually unlovable. Does that give you an idea how amazing his love is? And then yet, God so loved us. You know, the world loves to paint God as this judging, hating God who just wants to send everyone to hell. Yes, God has the right to judge sin and to pronounce punishment. Yes, but right here we can see there is a, quote, love attribute of God that is unexplainable. First, Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has every right to pronounce judgment on all who have sinned. Not only that, God has every right to enact judgment right now at this very moment. If he pleases. But there's more to God than that. He is also love. He has provided a way to escape hell. He didn't have to do that. He sent his son out of love. He didn't have to do that. He did it because he loves us. We're, 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 just, we're getting a, just a glimpse of how amazing God's love is. We're going to spend eternity amazed at his love. Titus 3, 4 says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Why? Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus just escorted Nicodemus right into the love of God that he didn't know. Nicodemus understood that there are people headed for hell to be punished for their sins. He understood the wrath of God. He understood the, the judgment of God. But now he's thinking about the kingdom of God. He's thinking about heaven. He's thinking about an eternal kingdom. And so Nicodemus's real question was, how does one escape hell and judgment and get to heaven? That's what he really wants to know. And Jesus just gave him the most beautiful answer one could ever hear. It's by believing. How does one escape hell and get to heaven? 
The answer is by faith, not by works, by faith, not by religion, but believing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. Nicodemus, Jesus says, Nicodemus, it's not about your morality, or maybe speaking to anyone here. It's not about your morality. It's not about your virtue. It's not about your education. It's not about your ceremonies, rituals, religious activities. The only way to escape hell and enter heaven is by believing, believing by faith. Out of the lips of Jesus himself. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus. He's like, you want peace? You want hope? You want joy? You want forgiveness? You want to understand spiritual reality? You want eternal life? You want to know that you know you are in the kingdom of God, then believe in the son of man who was lifted up. Then believe in the son of God who descended from heaven. I'm not sure what answer Nicodemus thought he would get, but I'm sure it wasn't that one. You see, the, for the first time, Nicodemus is hearing the truth about salvation. He's hearing the truth. The whole system that the Jews had set up over the years was all lies. It was salvation by works and by religious rituals. It was about abiding in man-made rules. This is how man thought they could find favor in the eyes of God. But Jesus just took all of that and threw it right in the trash can when he said, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. In other words, in order to see the kingdom of God, you need what you can't contribute to. What you have to do is believe. Believe in him and have eternal life. But but guess what? I told you Nicodemus was struggling at this point. He doesn't believe. He doesn't buy it at this time. He doesn't accept this truth. He was probably in shock, really hearing this teaching, but did that stop Jesus? No, Jesus just kept adding to Nicodemus's bewilderment. Remember how we talked about being born again? And and who did Jesus say who had to be born again? Everyone, right? Everyone, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews also. Now, Nicodemus did not understand that because he thought the Jews were God's covenant people. They were a shoe in. They didn't need to do all this other stuff. Well, here we are again. Jesus says, whoever, whoever believes in the son of man who who has come from heaven and is lifted up, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Who did he say? Whoever. I'm thinking at this time, Nicodemus's eyebrow muscles had a major workout that night. You know, it's just like, what, what? What? You know, everyone must be born again. Jesus is the son of man. Salvation is of faith that not works. And now whoever believes. You know what? Maybe we should walk around like that all the time. If people ask you, what are you doing? Have you heard what God has said? Have you heard what Jesus has done? Just the surprise look on our face all the time. 
maybe that's when when God opens your eyes, I guess. You know, I don't know. <laughs> and now whoever believes, I believe Nicodemus went back to his first question. How can this be? How can this be? The Jews knew what eternal life was. It was the life of God pressing, possessing the life of God now and forever. And Jesus is saying this eternal life is available to whoever believes. He had to be shocked. Why? Well, we talked about this before. The Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he would save Israel and punish all the nations. Think about that. That's his mindset. God would punish the nations for their blasphemy. They believed that the Messiah, when he came, would punish the nations for their idolatry. And he would punish them for this, listen, for their mistreatment of Israel. And now Jesus says, Eternal life is for whoever believes. He has opened it up to all of the nations of the world. Jesus did not say anything about Moses. He did not mention Abraham, nothing about the temple, nothing about the tabernacle, nothing about the law. He simply says it's about believing in the son of man who is lifted up and whoever believes will have eternal life. I'm just thinking Nicodemus walked around looking like he had a bad facelift for, for a long time, you know, hoping people would ask him questions. I don't know what he looked like, but I know he was in shock, trying to make sense of all that Jesus said. Had to be overwhelming. Had to be. He's like, let me get this straight, Jesus. Anybody who believes, anybody who believes in him, the son of man who's lifted up, will it escape judgment? Will it escape hell? Be given forgiveness, blessing, everlasting life in heaven, and that salvation is by faith? Anybody, even those bad nations over there? Even all of those Gentiles, anybody? Nothing new under the sun, is it? I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but I have. I've shared the gospel with people. And, and they'll say, uh, you, you'll tell them that salvation is available to all, available to anyone who will believe. And they will say, you are telling me that a murderer can go to heaven if he just puts his faith in Jesus? I say to them, you better hope so. Then they always take it to that final step. If Hitler put his trust in Jesus and truly believed in Jesus, you were saying he would go to heaven. And I would say, yes. Yes, he would. And they go, that's just, you see, these are people who have not done as a self-examination. They do not understand the evil in their hearts. They're the ones who think, well, I'm a pretty good person, but pretty good doesn't get it. 
I've got a golf story. <laughs> Put the ball up, you know, it's this far away. I say to the guys, is that good? They go, pretty good. Meaning it ain't good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Pretty good that doesn't get it. It doesn't get it. They are people who judge others and not self. They are like the Pharisees who will say, well, at least I'm not like them. Know this about the gospel message. The free offer of the gospel is broad enough to include the worst sinners who believe. What did we just sing a few minutes ago? The vilest offender who truly believes at that moment, at that moment. Jesus did not come to save the righteous. He came to seek and save the lost. And you know, there's not levels of lostness. Either you're lost or not. There's no levels. The free offer of the gospel is broad enough to include the worst sinner who believes. It's broad enough that it even includes the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, if a murderer <laughs> believes, he will be saved. This is just devastating to Nicodemus and to those who think they are pretty good people. The gospel confuses a lot of people. Why in the world would God do this? Why would God give eternal life to anybody who just believes, who just believes in him? Why would God not reserve eternal would not reserve eternal life for the for the good people, the ones who keep the rules, for the people who follow the law, for the ones who keep the Sabbath, for the people who were zealous for the holy things, the ones who did the ceremonies or offered sacrifices? Why wouldn't he just keep heaven for people like that? And the answer is, for God so loved what? He loved humanity. That's why the gospel is available to whosoever, because of God's love, because of God's amazing love. This is not something that comes from man. This is a heavenly thing. It comes from above. You know, we have to make sure that the church does not become like the Jews back then. We cannot set back and hate the world. You know, they, 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 they had hatred for the Gentiles and the nations around them. They hated the Romans living amongst them. They justified their hate because they believed that God hated them too. They, they saw themselves as the representatives of God. And so they hated the world because they thought God hated the world. But they were wrong. They were wrong. We can see that that's not true. The reason that God makes salvation available to anyone who believes and the reason that anybody can believe is because God actually loves the world. There's only one world, one realm of humanity, and God has determined to set his love <laughs> on that world. Amazing love. How can it be? Sing the rest to yourself. 
So the motive for salvation is love and the object of salvation is the world. We can see God's love in the world every day. It's called common grace. Just look around. You see God's love. What does the word say? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the just and the unjust. People enjoy life. They, they, they fall in love, save people and lost. Enjoy the beauties of life and the world. So we can see that God has a general love for humanity by his common grace that we see every day. But the biggest way in which we see his love for humanity is that he has given us the gospel through his unique son. And the gospels reaches to the end of the, and the gospel reaches to the end of the earth. In Revelations 4 through 7, what do we see? We see all the saints gathered around the throne. Who are they? They are from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, just like was prophesied about the kingdom of God, the dominion of God. It's very hard a lot of times for the church to love the world. We get into our little cliques and feel safe. But we have to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. We have to love. Yes, we, we hate sin. Jesus hated sin. I'm not saying go love sin. But Jesus loved humanity. Each person is a precious soul created by God. Each person needs to hear the gospel and understand the love of God. We need to tell them that the son of God became the son of man so that God and man can be reconciled. Tell them the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. This is God's plan for salvation. For who? For whoever will believe. Whoever will believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So this is a time to examine your heart. Do you truly believe? Do you? No one has time to put this decision off for another day. It needs to happen today. Examine your heart. Yes, God so loved the world and whoever believes in him will have eternal life in the kingdom of God. But there is judgment for those who do not believe. There is judgment. There is eternal judgment for those who do not put their trust in Jesus. So Jesus, just like Nicodemus, Jesus has walked all of us right to the foot of the cross. Right to the foot of the cross. And all you have to do is believe. Make today the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen.